0: This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. I have a PhD in criminal justice and 17 years experience in the law enforcement field, and I am happy to share my knowledge with you. Hello, class. How is everybody? I'm going to do something a little bit different and I'm going to start out chatting about some stuff and I know a lot of people don't like that. So if you don't want to hear me yakking, just fast forward like five minutes. Okay, so um, it's like 4.30 a.m. And I don't mean to whine, but I had a bad pain day yesterday. So I took a muscle relaxer like about noon, I don't know, and I slept the entire day until just a little while ago, and I hate when I do that because I feel like I've wasted a whole day. I have obviously work to do on this podcast, so I woke up, and Nathan was in bed with me, of course, and he had nine toys in the bed with us, us. so (laughs) That means I think there were a couple to start out with. But at some point while I was sleeping for all that time, he must have got up to like do his business, whatever. And it, it seems like every time he comes back into bed, he's got a different toy with him. I'm like, dude, how many toys do we need in bed here? And then I saw something shitty. Um, my abs played yesterday while I was sleeping and I checked the, the score and they got crushed by the Florida Panthers four to nothing. So this was like, they're on a road trip. I'm sure nobody cares about this. Um, they're on a road trip. And they're playing like absolute total shit. So I saw that. and I'm like, oh, fuck me. And then I opened my mail, my email. And I got the best nicest, most awesome email ever from a listener. And I want to read it to you. I don't usually do this, but this made me so happy. You know, it's um a lot of people that aren't podcasters. I don't think you really understand how much it means to us when you compliment us. Even like, Nice episode, or you know I enjoyed this, or I learned something, or whatever it is, like something that simple, or give me a nice five star rating somewhere hint hint, but this one was just the best I've ever had, I think, and I asked her if I could share it with you. She said yes, she said she lives on the cold Canadian prairie, so again. I love Canada, and I love my Canadian students. And she says, I've just started listening to your podcast, and after the first couple of episodes, I started binging. I like your approach. You are so thorough with excellent research. I like how well and deeply you explore the lives and motivations of the perpetrators and how kind and supportive you are of the victims. I really appreciate the information you give about the places where the crimes occur, both the locale and the specifics of the actual place where the crime has taken place. Often, I feel as if I can clearly see how and where it happened and I am grateful for the details you give about the lives of the people involved. Unlike with many other podcasts, I feel as if you have given a real sense of the context of the people, their lives, their families, and what it has meant to lose them. I have cried, and I don't do that often, because you have made the people come to life, and the loss of them hurts. I also appreciate the sympathy and empathy you evoke for some of the perpetrators, those who deserve it. I don't usually listen to episodes about young offenders because the judgments are so harsh. I have come to trust what you will say and the knowledge you bring about how the child offenders have come to commit their crimes. I live in Canada. Our approach is different than that of many of the American states. It seems to me that the criminal justice systems in them emphasize retribution and have little interest in rehabilitation. I feel that when a young offender with an as-yet-undeveloped brain is locked up for decades in the harsh prison environment, then the state has abandoned its duty of care to that young citizen and wasted another life, compounding the loss of the victim." I am currently listening to episodes on the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre. I'm one who is grateful for your in-depth exploration. And lastly, I want to say that it is always a pleasure to hear Nathan and to hear about Nathan. Thank you for making your excellent podcast. I hope you can keep it up for a long time, despite the incredible amount of work it requires. I have learned a lot from you and expect to learn more thank you so much. And um, the reason that I wanted to share that was she is obviously somebody who gets the point of my podcast. She would be like my target audience. She's obviously intelligent, and that's who my target audience is, intelligent thinking people. And she said that she appreciates how I describe places, describe people, try to like bring the story to life, you know, introduce all the people involved so that we can better understand how they live and um sometimes in order to understand a crime you have to explain the context in which it occurred. And she is right about the American criminal justice system, how it is very retribution-oriented, especially with the young offenders. I'm not trying to excuse anybody, of course, but kids who commit crimes, if you lock them up for years and years, I think we've learned what happens to them, that they come out worse because they've... I've said that prisons and jails like criminal colleges where people can learn how to commit and get away with different types of crimes and sometimes meet people who will eventually be their partners in crime. So that's definitely problem that we have here. And of course, I don't have any answers. I don't pretend to, you know, I just give the facts. So Okay, that was 10 minutes. There is a trigger warning for this episode, and it is graphic details of people's illness. We are obviously talking about a poisoner, and I have details of the illnesses that people got and how they died, and I I could just kind of brush over it saying, you know, she was sick for several days and she died. But I want everybody to understand there were two people who died and there were many others who were made sick. And the illnesses that these people went through were horrible. So I want to emphasize that. How miserable this asshole, Graham Young, made people. And also how incredibly cold and calculated he is when he asks about, you know, the victims, like how is so and so, and he's going to keep another diary, and we're going to read from that and see his observations. So trigger warning for, um I guess, vomiting and diarrhea. I know that's not really pleasant to discuss, but it's awful. And I want you to understand what these people experienced. These people are miserable. It's not something that just, you know, like you shoot somebody and they die in a minute. I mean, a couple, the people who died were in agony. And I like for us to appreciate that. So when we left off, Yeah, 13 minutes in. When we left off last time, it was May 10th of 1971. And Graham had just started working as an assistant storekeeper at Hadland's Labs, which was opened by John Hadland in 1960. And the the reason I want to set the scene of this workplace is because this is where he committed his crimes. He poisoned his co-workers. So I want to give a good foundation so that we understand this place and the people who worked there. John and his wife, Daphne, had a photographic equipment business in their home. And in 1960, they bought this property, which had actually been a farm, and moved all their equipment into it. If you look at, this is in the village of Bovington. It's it's actually called a village. If you look at on Google Maps over, you know, like an overhead shot, you can see a lot of farmlands. So that's the kind of place that this business was in. The business was described as, quote, specializing in designing and manufacturing photographic instrumentation particularly high-speed cameras for defense research, end quote. So a very specific thing. And I just threw this tidbit in because it's so fascinating. It doesn't have anything to do with the case, obviously. But in 1966, they developed the world's fastest camera. It's called the ImaCon. And it could take 60 million pictures a second. I cannot even wrap my mind. Around that, how that is possible. I just absolutely cannot. So I thought that I'm trying to ignore him. I thought that Eden's would enjoy that little tidbit. By 1971, there were 76 people employed there, and there were five departments camera production, processing, service, sales, and demonstration, and the general workshop slash store. And Graham worked in this last part. He was responsible for maintaining stock needed in manufacturing and sending and receiving goods. He usually worked in a packing bay, so he packed goods for dispatch and unpacked raw material raw materials when they came in. So mainly he moved a bunch of boxes around is what i picture graham's supervisor was robert aka bob eagle he was born in norfolk in 1912 two days before the titanic sank and obviously if i'm giving so much information on him you probably already know why he lived with his wife dorothy in a cottage called orchard glen in whilpley hill near the town of Bovington, where the lab was. And this is so quaint, like such an English thing. They lived in a cottage and it had a name. Sounds like a fairy tale, I guess. So Bovington, as I mentioned, is a village in Hertfordshire. And I looked through some pictures of this place and it does look like a fairy tale village. Everything there is quaint, with beautiful buildings and the town or the village is mentioned as way back in time as the 1200s for I don't know why maybe because it is just such a beautiful place there have been lots of movies filmed here and if you're interested you can google that because I mean there's a whole bunch I'm not gonna sit here and read them so Graham got to know Bob because he was like his immediate supervisor and Bob had been in World War II, and Graham would pester him for stories about, you know, war stories, like, tell me what you did or what happened or whatever. And we know why, of course, Graham did this, because he liked to hear um, graphic details about things, but World War II was one of his interests, one of his special interests. And as I understand correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong, But most people who have been in a war don't like when people ask them for war stories because obviously, or it should be obvious, maybe not, this was probably something traumatic for the person and probably stuff that they don't really want to talk about. So somebody else who worked in the stores was 56-year-old Fred Biggs. He was head of the Works in Progress Department. He also worked there with his wife, Annie. She worked in the clerical section. They both started in 1970. And this place, Hadlands, was trying to think how to describe this. The atmosphere was very family-like. You know how some places you work, it's just kind of, you know, clinical, like people don't mix and they go around their own business. Other places, the atmosphere is just like, it's a big family. Hadland's was like a big family. And this is important. We're actually going to see a couple other husband and wife duos who both work there together. And this is going to be important because if, if you work in like a huge corporation and, you know, you're standing maybe in the elevator or around the water cooler and, Somebody's like, oh, you know, Joe Smith and a cowling died. And you're like, oh well that that sucks, but you know, I have no idea who this is. These people were close. They worked like side by side every day and they did know each other. So whenever we get to like, you know, did you hear Bob's really sick? Everybody's upset. And when as we know they're gonna die, a couple people. The people who worked with them were devastated because they worked very closely with them, and like I said, they were like family. So I really want to emphasize this. Bob and Fred were said to take a fatherly interest in Graham, you know, because they were older and he was young and he was new, and they were nice dudes. Also, welcoming to him was 41-year-old Ron Hewitt, who was a delivery driver slash worker in the packing bay. And in the book, The St. Albans Poisoner, Ron is quoted as saying that Graham was, quote, perfectly pleasant, if a bit baffling. Also, that he was, quote, completely emotionless, except for his rather dry sense of humor, unquote. And everybody there thought it was strange how Graham would spend his breaks reading medical textbooks. 18-year-old Martin Hancock, who worked in the lab, later said that he knew Graham very well and had long conversations with him, which were almost always about medicine and pharmaceutical things, Graham knew all the Latin names for drugs and other medical terms, and he would use these terms. So if Graham learned just emoticum, Latin there, see what I did, of Latin and Greek, he could pretty much easily understand any kind of scientific textbook that he read. So, in the workplace, they had a canteen where lunch was made and served by two kindly older women, Mrs. Pestad and Mrs. Lawson. And they provided all this stuff, like beverages and fruit, free to the employees. So, anytime you have food, drinks, and Grammyong, how does it usually end? Yeah. And I know I have some British listeners, and you just have this thing about tea. I read a lot of English, Scottish and Irish fiction. And these people are always drinking tea. There's like a whole production behind. They have it in the morning, they have it in the afternoon. There's different, as I understand, like biscuits or different kinds of snacks that accompany tea. So since this place was in England, all of these people had tea twice a day. Graham picked up a habit of, for morning tea and afternoon tea, wheeling it around on a tray. And everybody was probably like, oh, how nice that kid Graham, you know, he's a little weird, but look how nice he is handing out tea to people. And if you remember one of his nicknames was the teacup poisoner. Somebody else that he got to know very well was Secretary Diana Smart. She was 40 years old, and she also had a spouse who worked there, her husband Norman. She said that Graham was clean, neat, and polite, but that he seemed lonely, and his use of big words could be annoying. And I'm sure that he did it just to be pretentious. However, and this is interesting. She said she got bad vibes. That's my words. I'm not real sure what phrase she used. But some people are very in tune with other people. And if, if somebody's dangerous or off or just an asshole or whatever, sometimes people can get a sense of that. So I'm thinking... That Diana sensed that he he was just off. And she said all he talked about was death, wars, murders, Nazis, and quote-unquote spooky films, which I guess means horror movies. So a couple people there knew that Graham had been in a hospital due to some kind of breakdown. And they had no idea that it was Broadmoor, just a hospital. Somebody asked him what he did before, like, you know, for employment. And Graham said that he was a failed chemistry student, which I guess is kind of true because he was always studying chemistry. But Diana told Graham one time that she was taking a first aid course. So he brought her books called Principles and Practice of Forensic Medicine And a dictionary of treatment. And she's probably like, um, thank you, Graham, but these are like of absolutely no use to me. Sometimes he brought a transistor radio, and this is just a, I'm actually old enough to have seen these, really small radio that operates on batteries. And it said that he would listen to solemn music, and I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. According to P.O., Susan Vidal's notes, she went to the pub that Graham frequented. It was called, fittingly enough, the halfway house at the end of the road from Hadland's. He would sit there and drink and smoke, chat with others, or read. And she wrote, quote, he clearly values our sessions and would, I think, like to have more of my time. I think it is likely that Mr. Young has already become quite attached to me, and I feel that we may have to work through this before I can make our contact fortnightly instead of weekly, end quote. And this is like a, a little strange to me because, I guess because I'm looking at it from my own perspective experiences as a probation officer. And we were in no way, shape or form, counselors or there to like connect with these people and help them. We were there to make sure that they did what they were supposed to do. And just from the notes I read that Susan wrote about him, seems like she was more of like a therapist or counselor or tried to be in any case. And it, it's interesting how she points out that she thought that he might be getting like attached to her as far as wanted her time and, you know, wanted her attention and stuff. And I don't know if it is or not, but one of the first things they teach you if you're going to be a professional like counselor, therapist, anything like that, is the danger of something called transference. And that is when a patient starts to feel like their therapist is maybe like a parent figure or like a romantic attraction, like they mistake the care that the therapist shows them and twist it around. And there's also something called countertransference, which is when the therapist Develops a kind of attachment to the patient. That's the more rare. But it just sounded to me like there was maybe a little bit of this going on between Graham and his PO. She also made note of his increasing dependence on alcohol, and she said that he always had a bottle of cheap wine handy. Like Diana, she thought that he was lonely, and that's why he drank. I'm thinking that it was more of a coping mechanism because. Even though this dude's weird, he still needs coping mechanisms, and I think we know that a lot of people turn to substance abuse as unhealthy coping mechanisms. So on June 1st, like not quite a month after Graham started working there, his supervisor Bob started to experience diarrhea and, in his words, sickness unlike anything he'd ever had. His wife, Dorothy, told the police later that he'd only been sick with the flu a couple of times since they've been married. That same weekend, Dorothy also had a severe illness. So the family doctor came on June 4th to see both of them. And he gave Dorothy antibiotics and told Bob, what do doctors always say? Rest and drink lots of liquids. So Monday, Bob went to work. But by early afternoon, he had another bout of vomiting and diarrhea and went home. Meanwhile, the same weekend, Graham went to one of his favorite stores, John Bell and Croydon Pharmacy, posing as a student, and got some antimony, potassium tartrate, and thallium acetate. The clerk who served him would remember him because... He was the only person who had bought poison in the whole two years that the clerk had been working there. So it wasn't like somebody just wandered in every day and asked for stuff like this. On June 8th, Graham went to his outpatient clinic where he saw Dr. Udwin and the doctor noted that he seemed entirely well. I'm convinced this dude was fucking clueless. He was the same one who... Let him out of Broadmoor. He said he was cured and would never do anything bad again. So Bob and his wife took a one-week holiday in Great Yarmouth. They stayed near the seaside, which sounds wonderful, very relaxing. They had a great time. Nobody was sick. And he came back to work on June 28th in a good mood. The next day, he noticed that his fingertips were numb. And he told Dorothy he felt awful all day. By the way, if any part of your body is numb, it usually means there's either nerve damage or something wrong with your nervous system. He couldn't eat that night and he had bad backache. Dorothy had to help him undress and get into bed. And he said that his back never hurt so bad in his life. She gave him two codeine pills and a hot water bottle, which is the old version of a heating pad. And she said that she heard him groaning in pain all night. And I'm thinking, if I was in bed with somebody, you know, like my boyfriend or or somebody, and I heard them groaning all night, that had to have been very disturbing for her, you know, because she cares about him and he's laying there miserable. So the next morning, he couldn't feel his feet. Dorothy called the doctor and he said Bob had peripheral neuritis, which is inflammation of the nerves in arms and legs. That's what peripheral means. And you're going to see this come up again later with other people. So he gave him two pills. I don't know what kind of pills. So the doctor left and this kind of gross, but I want you to know what this poor dude experienced. Bob violently vomited black liquid. And if you ever do that, go to the hospital right away. That's blood. And blood in your stomach is never a good thing. So the doctor came back and he was surprised at how much worse Bob had gotten in this short time. Bob now had unbearable pain everywhere. So he was sent by ambulance to Hemel Hempstead Hospital They put him in bed and sedated him. Later that day, he had a lumbar puncture, otherwise known as spinal tap. And I had one of those. And what they're getting from your spinal column is cerebrospinal fluid. It should be clear, like water. But Bob's was bloodstained, which, of course, is a very bad sign. It means that he's probably bleeding in his brain somewhere. He continued to deteriorate, so he was transferred to the ICU at St. Albans Hospital. Dorothy went to see him and actually burst into tears. At the sight of him, he was so weak that he couldn't even open his eyes. Now, at Hadlands, everybody knew the Bob was sick, and everybody's talking about it, of course. A secretary named Mary said that one of the people who kept asking everybody about Bob was of course Graham and he's like how is he is he any better do they know what's wrong with him? what are his symptoms Graham went and visited his sister Winnie, Winnie and told her about Bob and he said he had a virus that's affecting his nervous system and Winnie's like oh that's really awful I hope he gets better well he didn't Bob couldn't breathe so he had to be put on a respirator and he developed pneumonia. So on July 7th at 10.15 p.m., Bob was 60. Dorothy got a call from the hospital, and they're like, Bob died. They did an autopsy on him on July 9th, and this was kind of like an unsolved mystery. Supposedly, his air passages were full of pus. Both lungs were full of pneumonia, His spleen was red and septic, and his liver and kidneys were fucked up. I don't think it said fucked up. That's just my terminology. But your liver and kidneys are are what filters things like poisons. So that is a sign that his body had ingested something nasty, and his liver and kidneys were trying to fight it. His cause of death was bronchial pneumonia, secondary to Guillain-Barré polyneuritis. So Guillain-Barré, that's French, is a very rare condition in which the nerve cells are damaged and they cause paralysis. It's autoimmune, meaning the immune system attacks the nerves like MS, but this is worse. And supposedly it may be triggered by a bacterial or viral infection. And as you can imagine, at had lands, everybody was shocked to hear this. Diana recalled that Graham asked her if she was going to the funeral because he wanted to go. And of course he wants to go because he wants to look at Bob laying there and think, you know, that's, that's my work. I did that. Probably also enjoy everybody's grief and everybody's talking about you know, what happened to Bob. Then somebody else there got sick, and this was Ron. He'd been sick on and off. He said it started at work, just after tea, and he thought it was something in the tea, and he would be right. His throat burned, and he had stomach pains, and he vomited, so somebody drove him home. He couldn't eat for two or three days. He went to a doctor who said he had a bug, So he was off for a week, and a few days after he went back to work, he had another bout of this abdominal pain. Fortunately, this wasn't as bad as the last time, and he cleared it up with the medicine that he had. So everybody was talking about something that they called the Bovington bug, and supposedly this had nothing to do with Graham. This was an actual flu that was going around the neighborhood, and kids would get it and bring it home. Kids are germy little things. They go to school, and somebody has the flu or cold, and they get it, and they bring it home, and they make everybody at home sick. So kids are bad for your health. Graham managed to get invited to Bob's funeral. A couple weird things. Never heard of having to be invited to a funeral. I don't know, but it was on July 12th. This is the other thing that I don't really understand. After the funeral, everybody went to the crematory where Bob was cremated, and Graham was driven by a coworker named Jeffrey Foster, and he asked him, do we know from what illness Bob has died? And Jeff said, well, he saw his death certificate. I don't know how. That's kind of weird, but he said it was polyneuritis. So Graham goes... Did the certificate qualify this in any way as polyneuritis is only a general term? That sounds like Guillain-Barré syndrome. And Jeff, like, kind of surprisingly was like, um, yeah, that's what it said. So then Graham goes into this big soliloquy about this disease and its treatment. And Jeff is probably like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Following Rob's death, Graham was promoted to lab storming. I don't think he poisoned Bob because he wanted his job. I He just did it because he was there and he probably had a easy access to him. So Fred, remember him? He was working extra hours after Bob's death because, you know, you lose somebody and probably the work that he did, like, you know, piled up. He got along well with Graham. And that summer, the building was plagued with wasps. Diana recalled that Graham hated bugs, and he would jump around swatting madly. Then he would collect bugs on a piece of paper and watch them die. And Diana and some others saw him poking a dying spider. And they're all like, oh my god, Graham, stop that. Fred said that he had wasps in his garden fred was a big gardener he loved his garden and graham suggested he use nicotine which if you don't know is a poison so he brought some in in a tin and fred's like no thanks you know so then graham suggested a gallon of water with 10 grams of thallium because everybody just has thallium laying around their house fred again says no thanks around the time which is august and You know, I always go in chronological order. Fred got his first bout of illness. Like Bob, he'd been healthy all his life until now. This is cool. Fred and his wife, Annie, were into ballroom dancing. You know, like dancing with the stars. They did that. And they actually went to competitions and won medals. Like, they were really good. One day at work, remember Annie works there too, Fred told her that he felt sick. He said he'd been dreadfully sick and had awful stomach pains. Somebody drove them home, and he went to bed. The next day, he felt okay, so he went to work. Graham went on holiday on September 4th with Aunt Wynn, his uncle Jack, and his dad to a place called Sheerness. His aunt recalled that he was extremely moody and ill-tempered. And she also recalled that he told her about Bob's death from an obscure virus and that he had pins and needles in his fingers. She immediately suspected that he'd been poisoned because the symptoms were very similar to Molly's. And I'm now convinced that Aunt Wynne was the smartest family member here because nothing gets past her. She said that she never let Graham mess about in her kitchen because none of the family really trusted him. Can you imagine somebody in your family, like your nephew, son, brother, you don't want them around your food or your kitchen or just around, period, because they have a tendency to poison people and kill people? I can't imagine that. Another weird thing about Graham Diana said he liked to work in near darkness and this one I can explain. They had these really strong fluorescent lights there and he couldn't stand them. He would turn them off. This is a really big autistic thing. One of the things about autistic people is most of them have sensitivities to environmental stimuli like noise and light. A lot of us absolutely cannot stand fluorescent lights. They're I can't even explain it. They're they're painful sometimes just to look at it. It's I don't know, something about that wavelength or I don't know. But I'm sure that that's why he did that. I'm sure those lights annoyed him. Mid September, Graham had another phone conversation with Dr. Udwin, who noted that he seemed so settled that I was content to let him go forward with very little further interference. And I I wonder what Dr. Edwin would have thought if he'd known that Graham had just killed his second person. So remember I told you about Graham and all his textbooks. Well, he didn't always read them at lunch. Sometimes he would sit there and read them like when he was supposed to be working. And Peter Buck, who was the manager of the import and export department, became his immediate supervisor And he spoke to Graham about that, meaning, like, knock that shit off. So now Peter is on Graham's shit list. On September 20th, Peter was given tea by Graham that morning. This one's bad. This poor dude. Remember, Graham is mad at him. So whatever he gave him, it must have been a lot of it. He recalled that that the tea had a foreign taste, but he still drank it. And within thirty minutes, his head was throbbing. He had this intense dizziness and sharp abdominal pain, and he couldn't even stand up. He just sunk to the floor, and puked all over the store. Can you imagine that? That would be mortifying. So he was he was able to stagger into the bathroom where he puked again, and. He asked somebody to drive him home. And There's a lot of this going on. You know, I'm sick. I had diarrhea, whatever. Can you drive me home? And he thought, again, that the tea had made him sick. Diana had also been sick. And this is really strange. I cannot understand this. I've never heard anything like this. And I have expl- no explanation for this. All of a sudden, her feet stunk really bad. And her husband and son would, like, pick on her. They're like, oh, my God, Mom and Diana, your feet stink. Like, do something. And she tried everything. She washed them. She sprayed her shoes with something. Her feet kept just stinking really, really bad. So she went to the doctor. He thought it was a fungal skin infection, you know, like athlete's foot or something, which makes sense because, like, what else really can you think of so he gave her this cream her feet still stuck her toes went numb and then she was diagnosed with diabetes on October 8th David Tilson who'd only been at Hadlands for four months was working late taking stock and the room where the tea and the food kept was left open late so that the people who work late could help themselves and you probably see where this is going he often worked with Graham and Peter, and on this particular day, he was offered tea by Graham, and he drank it. So the next morning, his toes were numb, and he had pains in his legs. He went to the doctor. The doctor found nothing wrong, but gave him paracetamol. Paracetamol in the UK would be like the American version of either Tylenol or aspirin. So just like a generic pain reliever. And fortunately for him, this would be the end of his illness. But sadly, he ended up with a limp because of his numb foot. On October 12th, Graham started a diary. Remember, he did this as a teenager. He would take notes on the people he poisoned. When I quote from his diary, it was taken into evidence by the police. And it's quoted in Carol Ann Lee's book. And you know that it's like the... Main book, not, well, there's, Wynne wrote a book, and there was that one called The St. Albans Poisoner, but this one is like the definitive book on Graham Young. So in his diary, he talked about the methods, the victims, and observation of their symptoms. He referred to people by their initials, and later when the police asked him about it, he claimed it was Notes for a novel that he was going to write. And I can't think of who off the top of my head, but there's actually been quite a few criminals who use this excuse or try to. I don't think it's ever worked. Like the police find notes or, you know, something written and they're like, oh, I was writing a book or I'm writing a screenplay or something to that effect. So the diary starts off with an entry about David Tilson. And as I read this, just take a note of the language. Like, nobody talks like this, except for Graham. This is the way he is. And the it's, it's almost like he's not even talking. These are people that he knows and works with every day. He's talking like about them like they're lab rats. Quote, David's malady was diagnosed as fibrositis. Had, as was intended, the full amount been ingested, the resultant illness would have had a fatal resolution within seven to ten days, end quote. So, Graham is mad that this dude didn't, I don't know, drink his whole tea. That's, that's probably what he had it in. But he was irritated that he didn't die. He goes on, quote, So, all in all, I am quite satisfied with the situation, then he discussed with his diary who to target next, and the candidates were Fred Biggs, Jethro Bat, who worked in the lab, or a delivery driver named John Durant. He said, quote, I think it was probably imprudent of me to select a second substance from the same place. The similarity between the two deaths might have been commented upon, End quote. He decided against poisoning Jethro because he was a friend, and I'm like, since when has this ever mattered? I mean, he poisoned his whole fucking family. Fred, he said, was too closely associated with him, so he decided on John. He thought he was the most logical victim. He said, quote, this time I must restrain my tendency towards over-liberal dosage and administering the minimum necessary to achieve the desired effect. It should be quite amusing to see David's reaction to his fibrositis, especially when it proves to be a most intractable ailment. Within three weeks, a characteristic alopecia should occur, which, to a man of David's harshness, should prove a trifle embarrassing. End quote. Alopecia, of course, is the loss of hair. We saw it happen to Molly. And her sickness means hairy. And he's saying that, I guess, David was hairy. Or maybe he had, like, a a lot of hair on his head. I don't know. But he thought that that'd be really cool because David would probably be upset over losing hair. Then he discusses why John would be a good target. Quote, In a way, it seems a shame to condemn such a likable little man to so unpleasant an end, but I have made a decision and therefore he is doomed to premature decease. That one entry is so telling because it's just so fucking evil. And then he wrote about how David returned to work. And Graham asked him about his health. David said he had muscular pain and stiffness. And he said, quote, It seems that the damage caused by the drug is progressive, unquote. For whatever reason he he doesn't share with his diary, he decided against messing with John. So his friend Jethro recalled Graham discussing topics with him like Nazi Germany and crime. And he expressed disgust with the mistakes made by John Hay. If, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was another English serial killer convicted of killing six people. He was known as the acid bath murderer because he disposed of the bodies of his victims in sulfuric acid, and like big like vats of it or tubs of it. So Jethro nicknamed Graham the keeper of the Black Museum. And that's, I thought, was kind of funny. If you don't know what the Black Museum is, it is found in London in New Scotland Yard. And sadly, it's not open to the public anymore. It used to be, but now it's open to, like, um, government people and their families by appointment. But this is like the original crime museum. It has all kinds of objects that have been used in crime. And now it's part, there's like a replica of the original museum and a newer part on 20th century crimes. So you see why Graham got this nickname. On October 15th, Graham and Jethro were working overtime and Jethro said he was surprised to see Graham making tea. Norman, who was the security guard, said he was surprised to see Graham in the kitchen since usually only the women who worked in there had access to it. And he's like, what are you doing in there? And Graham said, I'm making coffee. Do you want some? So what Norm didn't realize was that if Graham Young ever offers you something, that's an automatic no. So fortunately, he said no thanks, but Jethro took a cup. He said it tasted like ass. And he later said that there was, quote, something about it. He mentioned this to Graham, who said, quote, What do you think I'm trying to poison you? So within 20 minutes, Jethro, quote, felt dodgy and nauseous. And the next morning, he woke up with his legs hurting. Later on, he said that he felt shattered. Over the weekend, he had stomach pains. He couldn't eat much. He did go to the doctor. He said he had abdominal pain and wind, which means that he was farting a lot. And I assume he had gas, like intestinal gas. And you know how sometimes you get pains from too much gas? That is an actual thing. So the doctor gave him medicine for flatulence, which I didn't know there was such a thing. So he goes back to work. He still has the pains in his legs, and he must have mentioned about not feeling good or something, because Graham was like, you know, what's going on? What are your symptoms? Meanwhile, that same weekend, David Tilson was sick too. He also had pain in his legs, chest, and abdomen. He went to the doctor, and the doctor found that his throat was inflamed, and he had slightly enlarged neck glands, which... If any of your glands are inflamed, it usually means that you're trying to fight something off, some kind of virus or or something in your body. So the doctor gave him penicillin, and Graham wrote in his diary, quote, October 18th, several new developments. David's symptoms have considerably worsened over the weekend. A second development, and one which I now regret, is that Jethro has been afflicted. So just a comment, if he's so sorry that his friend Jethro got sick, then um, why did he give him poison tea is is probably the logical follow-up question to that. And he goes on, quote, the symptoms have been slower to manifest themselves than in the case of David, but have been gradually appearing during the afternoon, end quote. So finally... Everybody at Hadland's is talking about this mysterious illness going around. David came to work one day and said his legs hurt, he couldn't concentrate, he had stomach pain and vomiting. He went to the doctor who said that he was a good deal worse since he'd last seen him and he sent him to St. Albans City Hospital where he was diagnosed with peripheral neuritis. Several doctors in the hospital looked at him, and nobody could figure out what was wrong. So, peripheral neuritis is not like a disease in and of itself. It's actually a symptom of something else, like poisoning. But nobody's picked up on that that yet. Jethro, who was having trouble walking, went to work and had a cup of coffee with Graham before he left. Diana was also sick. And she said that her husband Norman was homesick too. She said, as he was getting better, she was getting worse. And she was okay until the afternoon break when Graham gave her, Fred, and himself coffee. So poor Diana spent the rest of her day puking in the bathroom. Fred told her that he'd tried to give Graham a bit of work advice, but Graham didn't listen. And he also told her that Graham might ask her for a loan. She was like embarrassed and she said, well, he he already borrowed money from her several times, which he did repay, but she said that she was irritated that he had blown it all in the pub. At this point, Diana still liked Graham. She said there was something childlike about him. That will be an autistic trait for some reason. A lot of us act younger than we are. Or look younger for younger friends, its just it is an actual thing. And he asked about her health, which of course he did because she was one of his guinea pigs. Jethro seemed to be getting worse. He went back to the doctor, doctor again, found nothing, gave him some pain medicine, so Jethro went home and started hallucinating, which had to be really, really scary, and his wife was afraid he was going mad. She said at one point, he asked her for a gun to shoot himself with. He said later on that he didn't remember the worst days when he was actually banging his head against the wall. So his hair fell out till he was almost completely bald. And alopecia, losing your hair, is a very significant symptom of any kind of heavy metal poisoning like thallium, arsenic. So, Graham wrote in his diary, quote, David's condition continues to deteriorate. He was admitted to hospital this morning with paralysis of the legs. Jethro has also worsened. I feel rather ashamed of my action in harming Jethro. I think he's a really nice fellow and the nearest thing to a friend that I have at Hadlands. Diana irritated me intensely yesterday so I packed her off home with an attack of sickness. I only gave her sufficient to shake her up, though I now regret I didn't give her a larger dose capable of laying her up for a few days. I still am not completely free of the risk of detection. If I were to be detected, I should have to follow the maxim: Those who live by the sword die by the sword, end quote couple things. Notice he has an exit strategy planned. If he's caught, he wants to kill himself. We see how he uses poison as a weapon against people who, real or imagined, piss him off somehow. And with him, it's probably more of his imagination. And the funny thing out of this entry is he said, maxim. The word is maxim. Maxim. And that's Latin, and he should have known it. He wrote, on October 22nd, Diana got sick after the tea break. She later said, quote, When I came back from the toilet to the stores, Fred remarked how awful I looked. And when I was talking to Fred, Graham came up from the bottom of the stores and said, Are you not well, Di? And she said, I feel bloody awful. Graham then went into nurse mode. He got her a cup of cold water with no poison, pulled a chair up to the open back door, you know, to let some fresh air in and have her sit down, put his hand on her shoulder, and he said, yes, you do look rough. Obviously, he doesn't really care about her. He just wants to be right up on her so that he can study the reaction of whatever he'd poisoned her with. Also, being such a conniving little bastard, he may have been providing a kind of alibi for himself. Like, if or when he was accused of poisoning people, he could say, look, when these people got sick, I helped them. You know, I'm such a good bloke. After having a violent bout of diarrhea and vomiting in the bathroom, Diana went home and collapsed. Her husband called the doctor. He didn't even come. He just said, give her fluids. It's just the Bovington bug. She spent the whole night in her bathroom. She was still sick the next day. October 23rd, Graham took the bus to see his family. His dad had a birthday and Graham brought him a present. They went to a club. I'm guessing this is like a bar where Graham brought them drinks on a tray. And on Monday, Uncle Jack felt lightheaded and nauseous. Fortunately, he was better by nighttime. And nobody put two and two together. You know, that Jack's sick and we had drinks with Graham a couple days ago. Graham goes to work Monday. He learned that Diana and Jethro were off sick. But Diana's husband, Norm, was there. He said she was feeling a little better. And Graham asked people how David was. And he said, "I understand he's he's losing his hair." And people were like, "Um, what?" Because this detail was not widely known. Everybody's like, "'How would Graham know this?" Then Fred got sick. His wife, Annie, was there when, at about five pm, somebody told her that Fred was in the loo being sick. And she recalled that they went home. And Fred went right to bed. The next morning, he went to the doctor complaining of headache and tingly fingers. The doctor gave him Valium due to his anxiety. And you know what Valium is? It's a benzodiazepine. It's a sedative. And I'm thinking that the doctor really had no clue what was going on. So he just gave him this to, you know, keep him quiet. So there's a lot of going to doctors going on. Jethro went to his again, and finally the doctor took blood form to test. And this is the first doctor out of, I don't know if it's the first, but one of the few that we've heard of so far that has thought maybe it might be a good idea instead of just throwing stupid medicine at these people to to test their blood. Diana came back to work Wednesday. She had pains in her legs and a headache. Graham asked her how she felt, and she said she had vomited and diarrhea all weekend, and he kept asking her for details, like, do you have any, any idea what was wrong? So everybody's talking. All these people are sick. Bob died, and they are now starting to think, that it may be something more serious than the Bovington bug. On October 28th, delivery driver John Durant came to work. He used to deal with Bob, but now it's Graham that he deals with. So on this day, John took a cup of tea from Graham. And while they were sitting and drinking tea, John said something about his wife using something to clean their toilet. And it didn't work, so then she tried something else. And he said, this produced these fumes that really knocked them out. So, Graham's interested in this just because they're discussing toxic substances. And he asked John what kind of stuff they used because he studies these things. And John's like, well, I don't know. But John said he was using these technological scientific terms like a lab tech. And just a, a little lesson, chemistry lesson for everybody. I bet that they used ammonia and bleach because in case you didn't know, those two used together will produce a poisonous gas. I had a ambulance call one time at a some kind of store in a shopping center. They were cleaning the bathroom and somebody mixed ammonia and bleach and the fumes made everybody sick. I don't know if we took anybody to the hospital. I don't remember, but the point is don't ever mix ammonia and bleach. So John noticed that his tea, quote, had a tang to it. And the next morning, he woke up with a bad headache and nausea. His back hurt so bad that he needed help getting dressed. And I'm kind of thinking maybe all these people with back aches, Maybe it's actually their kidneys that are hurting because remember I told you before that any kind of poison or toxin is hard on the kidneys. So maybe that's what these people were having was pains in their kidneys. Well, he was sick for a week. He didn't go to the doctor. He thought it was a pulled muscle. And the doctor probably would have said, you know, it's the bug, just drink a lot and here's some paracetamol. Meanwhile, David was out of the hospital. He felt better for two days. Then he went downhill again. He was having hard palpitations, trouble breathing, and alopecia. So his doctor came to see him and, as usual, found nothing. Told him to rest and drink. So Saturday, October 30th, Fred and Annie Biggs were both working overtime to finish taking stock while Graham worked in the main store. Somebody suggested, why don't we have some tea? And guess who offered to make it? Sure, I don't have to tell you who it was. In Graham's diary, he wrote, quote, There is much to communicate since my last entry. Di, who I afflicted with a mild attack of gastroenteritis, on October 20th was subjected to further indisposition on the 22nd the results of which caused violent, vomiting, and diarrhea through the weekend. I believe she is now suitably chastened, end quote. And remember, he gave her the poison because he was mad at her about something. And notice the language that he chooses, who I afflicted. And he's so enjoying the fact that he caused this illness. He's so proud of himself. He goes on, quote, David out of hospital, still unwell. Fred Biggs, whom I grew to like, has been the most recent subject of my attentions. I have administered a fatal dose of the special compound to him, that's thallium, and anticipate reports of illness on Monday. He should die within the week. I gave him three separate doses, each of about five or six grams. The total absorbed should be about 15 to 16 grams, which constitutes a lethal dose. Unquote. So he's actually sitting here telling his diary that good old Fred, you know, he's a good bloke. I really like him. But I hope he dies because I gave him what should be a fatal dose of thallium. So Graham went to see his sister, Winnie. In her book, she recalled that he seemed a bit wobbly. She thought he was drunk. And she said he was acting weird or weird for him. And she urged him to have some tea. And suddenly he burst into tears. And she tried to get him to talk. Finally, he blurted out that he was lonely and couldn't get close to people. And... It's like, well, maybe if you stop poisoning everybody near you, you might be able to make some friends. She suggested that he go to night school and she said that she'd always remember what he said. And it was, quote, Nothing like that can help. You see, there's a terrible coldness inside of me. End quote. So we'll talk about that in psychology because I think that's a very significant thing to say. On November 1st, David was readmitted to the hospital, still has his hair falling out, tachycardia, which is fast heartbeat, slight fever. This time, the doctor took a sample of blood, pee, and his hair, which he later gave to the police. And remember, Jethro had a blood test. Well, his doctor told him that his blood test suggested a viral infection. Graham's diary, November 1st, quote, some new developments. David has relapsed and has been readmitted to hospital, end quote. And he was starting to lose his hair. David was. So this scared Graham because, like I said, alopecia is a really big symptom of heavy metal poisoning. All the other stuff like Vomiting, diarrhea, neuritis could be blamed on other stuff, but the hair falling out is kind of like a hallmark of poisoning. So, Graham is afraid that because of these people with their hair falling out, that some doctor might eventually hit upon the idea of poisoning. So, he's put all these events into motion, and now he wants to sit back. And watch and enjoy seeing what happens to these people. By the next day, Fred's feet hurt so bad that anything that touched them hurt. And that is like a a nerve disorder when you have something like that. So his next, Graham's next diary entry was, quote, Disturbing events. Apparently, David's hair loss was almost total. And the hospital authorities advanced the view that David's illness may be due to some kind of poisoning. If it seems inevitable that I shall be detected, then I shall have to destroy myself. There is no alternative, End quote. So finally, some doctor has brought up the possibility of poisoning. Fred quickly deteriorated overnight. He went to the hospital by ambulance, and a doctor, Ann Solomon, was on duty and noted that he had dry, scaly skin, a blue tinge to his nose, a furred tongue, and loss of sensation in his limbs. And David's doctor, he's still in the hospital, noted that his pattern of hair loss was, quote, very unusual and significant, end quote, which led the doctors to think of heavy metals and the possibility of thallium poisoning. There it is. One of these doctors finally buys a clue, and this is the first time that thallium poisoning, which is, I think I told you what he is using, and it was just as Graham feared. The alopecia was the tip-off here. In his diary, he wrote, quote, on the other fronts, the situation is more satisfactory. He uses the initial J, and I don't know if he means John or Jethro, but Jay is unchanged, confined to bed. Doctor proclaimed cause of illness, unusual virus. Fred was still sick, and he says, quote, the doctor has said that the illness is due to a virus, and that there is quite a lot going around. I'm sorry about all this, you know, this person in the hospital, this person out, this doctor said this, this one said that, but I just want to present it all so that you can hear, like, how this developed. David left the hospital the same day that Jethro was admitted to Princess Alexandra Hospital with stomach pain, hallucinations, and alopecia. His doctor noted that the only abnormality was the hair loss, quote, at a very fast rate. So the doctor and his colleagues came up with three possible causes of this. The first is that Guillain-Barré syndrome, the rare nerve disease. Second one is a disease called porphyria, which is a very rare disease, and just suffice to say that it's a blood disease. The third option was lead poisoning, and we know it's not lead, but at least they get the idea that it could possibly be some kind of poisoning. So now two people, David and Jethro, have doctors who are at least suggesting the possibility of poison. And in both of them, they had a great deal of hair loss. So at Hadland's, people are finally starting to freak the fuck out. People were afraid, suspicious. You know, they couldn't ignore this anymore. And they started taking time off, which... My ass would have been gone, like the second or third person that got sick like that. One dude later said that he was standing there looking out the window, and he saw somebody run out the door and puke in the grass. And I just want to bring up for a second, can we talk about how fucking stupid Graham is? Like, how long does he think he is going to get away with us? Because... Okay, like 70-some people work here. I told you it was like tight-knit. This is not like IBM with, you know, 3 million employees. People are going to start talking and sharing notes about, you know, did did you have hair loss? Did you have numbness in your legs? And they're eventually going to figure this out. So Jeff Foster, who I think was in management of, of some sort, Called the Hertfordshire County Council, and he talked to the health and divisional medical officer, a doctor Hind, and he's like, "Something weird is going on here. All these people are getting sick. One, one died." So they made an appointment for some doctors to come investigate Hadlands on November eleventh. So Graham is getting nervous, as he should be. He's trying to learn who was sick. How sick, you know, blah, blah, blah. So on November 5th, Graham called Annie, Fred's wife. And he's like, I heard Fred was in the hospital. Can I go see him? And she's like, no, he, he's really sick. He only wants to see family. So he kept pestering her. And he's like, well, could I go next week? And she just said something like, I don't know. We'll see, like, just to get rid of him. And I'm sure we we can figure out why. He wanted to see him in the hospital. He wanted to see how sick he was and admire what he'd done. On November 10th, Fred was transferred to the neurology department of Whittington Hospital and he was put in the care of the head of the department. The doctor noted that Fred was very ill with general weakness, trouble breathing, and swallowing. They suspected toxic effects from some infectious or poisonous substance. They called the Poison's Reference Department at Guy's Hospital, and they told him his symptoms, but sadly they didn't get like a, a real solid answer because Valium poisoning was still relatively new. It wasn't like a, a thing yet. In his diary, Graham wrote, quote, November 10th, fresh developments, some good, some not so good. Fred must have a phenomenal tolerance to the compound, for he is still obstinately alive. If he survives the third week, he will live. This would be inconvenient, end quote. What a little shit. He is still obstinately alive. On November 11th, These doctors came from H.M. factories, inspectorate, and started a full investigation of Hadlands. They also discussed the employee symptoms and the history of the illness. Dr. Hind inspected the kitchen and dining area, and we already know that they won't find anything. In case you haven't figured it out, Graham brings the poison. He has it somewhere on him, like in a pocket. So... Dr. Hind is talking to Graham, and he asked him about his living arrangements. I think what he was doing was just going around asking people. They're trying to find out the source of this illness. And if you've ever read anything or, or seen anything about epidemiology, that's the... And I, it's actually pretty interesting. It's the study of how diseases spread. Like, the the doctors will... Talk to all these people, and they'll be like, when did you get your first symptoms? They want to find out if these people live with somebody and if the other person or the people that they live with have been sick. And if they can trace all this back to like the first person who ever had symptoms, this person is called patient zero. It's like where this illness started from. So that's what they're doing. They're trying to find a patient zero or look for patterns of the spread of this illness. So that's why he wanted to know if Graham lived with anybody. So Graham's like, um, I live at 29 Maynard Road. And he couldn't remember his landlord's name, which the doctor found kind of weird. That Friday, Fred, I know I keep saying he's going downhill, but he's going even farther downhill. He had to have an endotracheal tube put in, and then he was transferred to the respiratory unit at the National Hospital in London. He was only semi-conscious. He couldn't talk, and he developed pneumonia. Remember, Bob did, too, and they were given him antibiotics by IV. On November 15th, Graham and Diana are talking about Fred, and Diana recalled that Graham brought up the similarities of Fred's and Bob's diseases. And all week he kept asking about Fred. And Diana's is like, he was getting on my last fucking nerve. This is obviously so incredibly stupid because first he tells his diary that he doesn't want people to start thinking about how similar everybody's illness is. Then he goes and actually points it out. November 16th, Graham wrote in his diary, he updated the condition of Diana, Jethro, and Fred, and he says, quote, Fred is now seriously ill. He is now unconscious and has developed bulbar paralysis. That's muscles in his head and neck are paralyzed. Necessitating a tracheotomy. It is likely that he will die within a few days. It would be a merciful release for him. End quote. So six doctors got together and had a conference. They discussed the employees' illnesses and their see to see if any of them were similar, which yeah they are. And they tried to figure out if this could have been prevented in any way. And they concluded that all of these illnesses were probably some kind of mysterious virus. So that evening, Graham goes to see Wynne, and he told her all about these people from the health department coming and what everybody's ailments are, and he says, quote, this chap in hospital is very ill. They think he is going blind, end quote. I don't know if he's talking about Fred or Jethro. Wynne goes, well, that's horrible. Will he get his sight back? And Graham said, no, I don't think so. Little did Wynne know that this was the last time she would see her brother free. So Graham goes home and made what would be his last diary entry because the net is finally closing and it is November 17th. I am most annoyed. The latest news from the hospital is that they think Fred is beginning to respond to treatment. That's totally not true. He's like on his deathbed. He is surviving far too long for my peace of mind. It is imperative that he passes on before total alopecia sets in, end quote. And this is a good place to stop for now. Next episode, we will talk about Graham's arrest, some of his trial, and maybe we can finish. But you know me can't count on that. And before we go, let's hear a word from Jay of Fright Flick FMK. Do you like scary movies? If your answer is yes, then you got to check out my show, Fright Flick FMK. My name's Jay, and along with my co-host, Gentleman and Jack, I watch and discuss horror movies and tell you what I think about them. New or old, mainstream or underground. No horror flick is safe from my warped opinion. So listen to Fright Flick FMK now. It's on all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Also, be sure to follow the show on TikTok and Instagram. But be warned, this promo is the longest amount of time you'll hear me talk without swearing or cracking an offensive joke.